Welcome to the Fairview Church Podcast. At Fairview Church, we are dedicated to reaching our neighbors with the true freedom found in full surrender to Christ. To find out more about our church, including service times, location, and current sermon series, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org. And will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Let's go to the Lord and invite his presence. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise of your spirit, Lord. We ask sincerely that your spirit would indwell this building today, that you would just be heavy in the air, God, and that the things that come out of your word would be alive, would be a correction to us, would write our vision of the world, and Lord, would change lives to build your kingdom to your glory. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You all may be seated. I am so humbled to be with you here today. Uh, I thank you for being a part of this body of believers uh, who has meant so much to us, to our family and I, uh, my family and I over, over this past few years. Uh, your support for us, even while we were in Israel, we had joining, people joining with us in support and praying for us. I want you to know what a ministry it was to us that I sincerely do thank you all. Uh, for your ministry to my family and I. Um, and that's why it's so hard to give you this message because not, not because this is not a message of hope, but it's also what comes with this promise is what God requires from us. Now, I'm not talking about, uh, um, you know, working, wor- you know, a works grace or anything like that, but I do want you to be open to listening to the word of God. And, and accepting what it says and believing that it is authoritative to speak into your life. You see, God could have given us a lot of things in this book. He could have given us the schematics to an internal combustion engine. I'm sure horses would have thanked him. He could have given us, uh, he could have given us the recipe for antibiotics. And millions upon millions of lives through history would have been saved. And yet, every word of this we say and believe is the word of God is inspired divinely by his spirit through human hands. And we say this is the word, authoritative, inerrant word of God, meaning without any mixture of error. And every word of it inspired by him. And so I have to think that in his word must be something of value. There must be something here 
that we need to come to again and again, Sunday after Sunday, and sing these songs and look at this book, that it can't just be that's all there is to it. It says here, as we begin looking at our text in verse 15, it says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Anytime you see if in the scripture, it should already make you know this is a conditional statement. If then, if you love me, then you will keep my commandments. Now, this condition doesn't end here, although it does in our English Bibles. In verse 16, the beginning of it begins with the, the Greek contraction, Kai. Uh, so if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. So if you love God, you will keep his commandments, and he will give you a promise of this coming spirit. Now, it says there that this spirit will be with us forever. How long, church? Boy, you guys are asleep. I told the first service, there's coffee out front. There's no excuse for being that tired, okay? I know life is hard, but you should be excited about this. How long will the spirit be with us? Excellent. Now, when all men doubt us, will the spirit be with us how long? When those closest to us turn away, when the very people who say that they are with us to the end, when they turn back, how long would this spirit be with us? And and when we cannot conceive that there could be any way forward, our life is broken and everything is in shambles, how long will the spirit be with us? And when we fail and we can't even trust ourselves, I want you to understand that this world is hard and the flesh is against us. Paul says that he struggles. In chapter 7 of Romans, he says, The very things that I want to do, those things I don't do, and the very things I hate, those things I do. But I recognize that there's a war within me, that I am at war against my flesh. Who can deliver me from this body of death? He says the flesh is against us. It's not our friend. And we look in the mirror every day and it's like we worship it. What can I do to dress up this flesh? Now, I'm not telling you don't take take any mind to your appearance. I'm simply saying, why do we focus so much on the outward parts and the inward is so filled with death? It says that this spirit will be with us forever. That this is the spirit of truth. Now, God often uses these personifications. I want you to understand. uh, God in the Old Testament says, I am jealous, that is my name. Now, is is jealousy righteous? We go, how does this fit with a holy God? God is owed. God is owed our worship. He is owed it because of who he is and who he means to us. And so when we deprive him of what he's created us for, his jealousy is not like our jealousy. It's not a green-eyed envy. It's a righteous jealousy. You have been created for a purpose, and you are acting against this purpose. He says, uh, the word says in the epistles of John, it says that God is love. The very personification of love. And here we find of the Holy Spirit, this this ethereal, uh, almost unknown third member of the Trinity. It says that he is the spirit of truth. He is the spirit of truth. 
This is why in Acts, when Ananias and Sapphira uh, lie about what they've, they've received from the selling of their lands, uh, Peter says to them, you don't understand. You've lied to the Holy Spirit. He's basically saying, like, this spirit is truth, and you've offered to him a lie. You have offered what is antithetical to the spirit of truth. And this is why the punishment is so severe. It says that this spirit is the spirit of truth that the world cannot receive. Some of you are social warriors. And I'm not telling you that uh, to shame you or to say that it's wrong to stand up for what is right. Of course it's not. But I want you to understand that you are fooling yourself if you think that this world will change in any other way than for the spirit of truth to come and to dwell with believers. See, the world can't receive it. You all are fighting about things. You're saying, well, it makes perfect sense in my head. How can people not see that there's two genders? How can people not see that there is, a, that there is even truth? How can people not see these things? And I see your Facebook posts and how you rant and rave with people who are unbelievers arguing back and forth. And I want you to understand that the reason that they can't believe is not because that they're any less intelligent than you. It's because they cannot believe there is no spirit of truth. It cannot come to them. It's cut off from them. There is no hope. And why do I say this? It's not to, to bring hopelessness to you who struggle against. It's to say, recognize the power God has given you. Recognize the authority of the Spirit. Use the means that God has determined to change the world. Not your own foolish worldly wisdom. Because that's not getting us anywhere. There is no authority in your voice. But the Word has power. It says that this Spirit of truth cannot come to them. They can't receive it. But it does not see Him. The world, it does not see him or know him, but you, well, you know him. You know him because he abides with you. Now, I, I want to use a muddied uh, theological term here to talk about this. Uh, call it a dispensation, call it a covenant, whatever it is. When we read through the scriptures, we know that God interacts with people in different ways in different periods of history. This is just something that we know from the text. And in this particular uh, age, God is with them, right? God is with them. Christ is walking with them. But the text says that it, he not only abides with you, his current audience, as of 2,000 years ago, but he will be in you. He will be in you. Now, how many of you believe today that if Jesus Christ were standing on this stage and not Elijah Hasi, that you would hear a more beneficial teaching? I'm raising my hand. If you don't, you're crazy. Look, how many of you believe that if Jesus Christ's ministry were today, this world would be different than it is? Yeah. Okay, let me ask you, how many of you have read John 16 where it says that Jesus would go away and that would be to our benefit because then the Holy Spirit would come 
And yet we act as we, we have no power. The Holy Spirit indwells us. Do you recognize what a gift this is? Do you recognize the power that goes along with the Holy Spirit? Do you recognize the demands that makes on us? Because the Holy Spirit doesn't come without power. It doesn't show up without there being some display of its presence, at least not when I read the biblical text. And yet we can say that we have this Holy Spirit in us and nobody even knows. We don't look any different than our neighbors. We don't have any way other than an offhand word to be able that people would go, oh yeah, they're a Christian. There's no evidence. There's no fruit. So what is there? We have this gift of the Spirit. It says that he will come into us. He will be in us. He promises in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans, literally orphanos. That's the Greek there. It's where we get our English word. I will come to you. I will not leave you as orphans. He says, after a little while, the world will no longer see me. But you will see me because I live, you will live also. Because he lives, we can face tomorrow. No? You don't sound convinced. Are you reading a different Bible? I know there's a lot of different translations, but I, I think that they all come around this idea. Because he lives. You see, if Christ has not been raised, my preaching is in vain. And your faith is worthless. Wait a minute. Did that guy just say my faith is worthless? If Christ, if we can't believe that 2,000 years ago, a man came, walked this earth, said he was the son of God, that everyone should submit to his authority, that he died and he went into the grave, but he didn't lay there as we would be. He rose up from this grave if we cannot believe in the physical resurrection of Christ, then this preaching that I'm doing is vanity. I'm up here for my own good and not for the good of, of the audience. And your faith is worthless. Boy, that's a hard word. But I want to tell you something, those of you who don't recognize it, it's not my word. It's Paul's words to the Corinthians. I'm broken up. I look at this world and I think like, why? Why God? I question, why God? Why are your people not acting like your people? And I'm not talking to any one individual person, but I think we all need to do some examination of something a little deeper than the flesh. We need to get out a spiritual mirror and wonder, why don't I love the study of God's word? Why don't I wanna be at church more than an hour a week? Why don't I want to join with the Spirit of God? Why don't I want to sit close on the front rows? And this is not the most spiritual places. I want you to understand that, that this building is exactly that, a building. And there's no magic in any of this. But there is a spirit in this. Now, God has said where two or more are gathered, his spirit will be also. He didn't tell us how far apart. That's a joke. I'm just saying... How are we not excited about the fact that God has said he put his spirit into us? How is that not encouraging us to do the works of God? He says, 
In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me, and I in you. Now that's hearkening back to Philip's question in verse 8 that we looked at last week. It says there, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. You don't believe that people were questioning even then, even the people that were closest to him, his own disciples? And he says, I'm the fa- I'm, I and the Father are one. And they go, man, just show us the Father then. You're one, show us the Father. And he's like, you don't get it. You don't get it. In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Now in that day, not in, in the day present, but in the day that was to come. How would they know it? By the promise of the Spirit. They're saying there's something in the filling of the Spirit that would confirm to us and enrich our faith. That's what they're teaching. That's what he's teaching here. He's saying that it will be in us and it will be a confirmation of the works of the Father and of the Son. He says, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Do we love God? Do we love Jesus Christ? And yet we deny the Spirit? He who has my commandments. You see, that wasn't that hard. He says in Matthew 22, they ask him, what are the great commandments? And he says, simple Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. The second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Don't miss this last part. Upon these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. That's what he says. 600 and something odd, thou shalt and thou shalt not. There's 365 thou shalt nots. You cannot do something the Lord doesn't want you to do every single day of the year. But all of them can be summed up in those two. Everything You see, because when I love my father, I don't sin against my father. My, my urge and my earnest want is to please him. And when I love my neighbor, I won't sin against him because I'll think, man, to hurt him is to hurt me. And he's saying, if you love me, you'll follow these commandments. He who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Some of you are wandering around, wondering where God is, and he hasn't shown himself to you because you've not even done the necessary steps to say, God, I'm here, and I love you, and I want to follow you. Because I have to say, this is a promise from the scriptures. We either believe this book is earnest in its promises or it's not. And so when it says I will love him and I will disclose myself to him. It's because we're not following our part. And to be honest, it's because you're unsaved. I'm not saying that to scare you. I'm saying that to tell you there's a hope because God has promised he will reveal, he will come, the spirit will fill us. It says uh, in verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot, probably the most unfortunate name in history, Mac Aroni or Don Key, I don't know, but Judas, not Iscariot. And you had to think he was thinking like, uh, man, Judas Iscariot has messed it up for all of us Judases. 
now are associated with this guy. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Do you understand that implicit in this statement is that Jesus is teaching that he will disclose himself only to those who are his true followers and the world will always think it's foolishness. The perishing will always think your faith is foolishness. You're not going to change that. When I did a degree in apologetics, I learned that the purpose of apologetics or a defense of the faith is to defend why my faith is reasonable, to aid believers in taking courage that their faith is not in vain, that the history that we, that we look at to say that this man Jesus was a real man is not a bunch of stories and myths fabricated by uh, later authors, but it's actually representative of what has happened in human history, that God has interceded into human history. And if you don't believe that, again, I would point you back to Paul in Corinthians. Your faith is worthless. It's useless. It says, Jesus answered him. Now, here's Jesus' response again. I want you to look at verse 8. He says, Lord, show us the Father. He doesn't get straight to uh, his direct answer to that question. The first answer to that question comes in verse 15. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So he says, Lord, show us the Father. And Jesus answers, keep the commandments. And here he says, how is it you say uh, you will disclose yourself to us and not to the world? And he says again, it's obedience. What are you missing here? I want you to understand, when you read the scriptures and it tells you something over and over and over and over again, especially in a very narrow passage, it's probably because God meant it. There's a story about an old preacher who comes into a church and and he's telling this story, the, the gospel, and he tells them, he calls them to repentance. And they say, boy, he was on fire today. And the next week, he opens up to the very same passage and teaches the very same passage of Scripture. And and they say, boy, that sounded familiar. And this one woman comes up. She says out to him after, it's a great sermon, but we heard it last week. When are you going to preach a different sermon? And he said, when you repent. (laughs) Jesus answered him and said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Where was the abode of God in the Old Testament? Who was the first person filled by the Spirit? Do you know these things? The first person filled by the Spirit was the person charged with decorating the tabernacle. When the tabernacle was created, it was this cloth dwelling place of God, the abode of God. And this was an amazing thing because the creator of the universe decided to dwell with the people of Israel as they were called out of Egypt. And his dwelling place was this tent, the tabernacle. And the first filling of the spirit, that is the spirit empowers someone to do a specific work. This is different than being actually indwelt by the spirit, I mind you, uh, I would remind you. But the first filling of the spirit was the artist who decorated the tabernacle. 
Now we flash forward to the time of Solomon. And Solomon uh, builds this magnificent structure. He says, it's so glorious and yet I have a problem. You can't fit in your own temple. And then we think like the way that the Israelites thought about the dwelling place of God. That they would have this inner sanctum. That the holy of holies that even the high priest would only go into once per year. Because of the holiness. And because he would have to spend the whole year literally readying himself to go into the abode of God only long enough to make a sacrifice on behalf of the people. This is how the Old Testament paints the holiness of God and the abode of God. And here we read that Jesus is saying, my father will love those who obeys my word and we will come to him and we will make our abode with him. So these people would have understood in this time, they would look at that temple and they would go, you mean God's not living in that great house on the hill filled with gold instruments made specifically to worship him? He's leaving that and he's coming into me. He's coming into me. And they would have been broken by it. And we're so inoculated against the very thought of the Holy Spirit that it doesn't shake us, but it should. It should shake us to our core to understand that God is going to dwell with us. It says, he who does not love me does not keep my commandments. And the words which you hear is not mine, but it's the Father who sent me. He's saying it's not even my word. I'm just the Son, the Father's word. It's his word, and I'm telling you it. And if you don't follow it, you don't love me because I am of the Father, and he is in me. And if you do follow it, I will come, we will come, the Father and I and the Spirit, the Helper, we will come and we will dwell in your unholy temple of flesh. He says in verse 25, he says, these things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. I was with you, he says, but soon the Helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. I have to think that there's some power in this spirit. I have to think that this Holy Spirit would not just show up and things would go on exactly as they always were. Because that is a God who is ineffectual. He is certainly not omnipotent. It's a God who has no ability to change lives, to change this world. And if I can't trust him to show up in power and authority, why would I trust him when, I, when he says that my sins are forgiven and that I'm going to live? You see, God's deliverance was not of death. If God had wanted you to simply live, he could have let Adam eat in the garden. He says, look, if they eat now, though, if they take from the tree of life, they'll be forever living in their sin. They'll be doomed to always walk in their sin. Death is an enemy, but it's not outside the authority of God. It's part of the creation of God. And it's so that we can truly live free from our sin. Just to perhaps beat a dead horse. It says in Zechariah 14, 
It says in verse three, it says, the Lord will go forth. This is talking about a day coming. And I think this is the coming of the spirit. It says, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. So these are a people who've seen God show up on a day of battle and utterly decimate their enemies. Utterly decimate their enemies. And they're saying, in this day that the Spirit comes, God is going to show up and he's gonna fight like it's a day of battle. He's gonna come girded for battle. And he's gonna be ready to work in power and authority. It says in verse 20, it says, in that day, there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the bowls before the altar. Every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts. And all who sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them. And there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. I want you to understand that when we excavate, we, we're digging up these really old things. We get a cooking pot. We know immediately what it is. It's burned and ragged. This is everyday use. This isn't going on your table when the guests come over. It's all burnt up on the outside. There's bits of, of nasty stuff corroded onto the inside of the pot. And God's telling us that's what we are. That's what we are. We're the cooking pots. And he's saying, look, in that day, in the day of the coming of the Spirit, the cooking pots will be filled as though they were the basins in the temple. As though they were the holy things, the gold and the fine things that they gathered around to worship this holy God. He's saying, I'm going to fill those cooking pots and they're going to serve me. And we got a cooking pot and we think that it's so good that we're not even willing to give it up. We're like, no, I can keep on living how I want to live. I can keep on doing what I want to do. And I'm here to tell you, this is not in this book. That idea is not in this book. It's not. It's not. But here's what is the promise of a helper. How long? Boy, you guys are not as fired up as you were earlier. Look, we're not too good. And the church is not doing too good. I mean, the church at large, we're losing a battle with society, with the world. We're losing. But it's not because the spirit is any less effective, it's that we no longer use it, we no longer go out in authority. We no longer think, we think that we can reinvent the wheel, that the, the task that God has put us to in here is dated, or that the means of doing it, that God has used us to share this story with our neighbors, is inefficient for the rescuing of the human heart. But I'm here to tell you that that's not the case. Now, we're going to go into a time of response in a moment. I'm going to do this first. Some of you, if you've not gathered, gathered one of these, somebody will come around or there's some in the back table. I want you to understand that, man, I don't have to wonder whether or not this is the case. I know it to be the case. That if God truly moved, his spirit truly moved 
that after service, this altar will be filled with people crying tears of repentance because they've taken the Spirit lightly and they've said that there has to be another way. I'm going to carry this out through my own authority. And that's not the story of God. God empowers us by his spirit to do his work. Now, as we take this, I want you to understand that Paul describes communion as something that we should not take lightly. Why does he say this? What's going to happen to the people who are not under God's grace? Judgment, right? That's what happens. So, if you take this, if you take the bread and the cup, and you are not a part of Christ, you are drinking to your own judgment. Hooray! Celebrate my judgment. So church, examine yourselves. It wouldn't be the worst thing in the world if we had to collect a few of these off the pews afterwards. But you have to understand what you're drinking to. Now, to believers, when you drink to this, you're drinking to your own salvation. You're saying, I believe in the power of this book. I believe in the coming of this man. That he said he was the son of God, the only begotten of the father. That he said he was God incarnate. I believe that. I believe that he died. But that he didn't stay there. That he rose again. That he is raised to newness of life so that I too can live. That's what you're drinking to. So if you take this out of any other means other than pure faith and belief. Woe be to you. Now, Jesus said, as he gathered his people together, open the top, not the bottom. I made that mistake last time. And then it's like, how do you get the, you know. He said, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. This is Paul. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And Jesus would have blessed it and said, that is, blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth, uh, excuse me, who brings forth bread from the earth. Look, I said, I warned you all, And then look, now I'm having to do this again. Here we go. I got it. Take this and know that this is what joins us together, the body of Christ. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And he would have blessed it and said, uh, Excuse me, That is, blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who uh, gives us the fruit of the vine. This is the blood of Christ. Now, what you have all joined into is not simply uh, taking of a little cracker and a little bit of juice. What you've basically said is that everyone in this room you are joined with 
as a part of the body of Christ, that there's something that ties us, that unites us, people from all walks of life, from every race of, of the world, from every people and tongue, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, united by the one true body of Christ that this is representative of. We're going to come into a time of decision. If you couldn't in good conscience take this communion, you need to spend some time with God. An altar is a perfect place to do it. I want you to understand that when there's a culture of a church coming to the altar, that God can move. And it's not because the power of these steps, they're wooden carpet. And I want you to understand, though, that there is power in the community that we receive. When we come before the Lord, when we humble ourselves before him, to be able to say, there is something greater than myself. There is something more to life than what I'm enjoying. And maybe there is power in this spirit. And you know, I've asked it like it doesn't even exist. I've just been going on through life as though it's another day and not recognizing that in the scope of history, my even being here drawing breath is an anomaly. Like this is a very small percentage of human history is going to contain you in it. Don't waste another day. The Lord says today is the day of salvation. And for those of you who have led an ineffective spiritual life, you come to and pray. And when you pray, I can promise you, as leaning on, leaning on the word of God itself, that God has said, he will show up. He's not gonna leave you as orphans. So as we sing, you come and pray. If you want someone to pray with you, I'll be up front. If not, that's okay too. There's plenty of steps, plenty of room. I love you all, and I hope that you understand that this book can be trusted. Thank you. Amen, will you stand? Thank you for listening to the Fairview Church Podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org.